invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 24. I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 12 through chapter 25, verse 9. Exodus 24, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst." Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we are so inadequate in ourselves to come to you, to even sit before your opened word and receive it. We ask you, Father, that by your very spirit you would take your word and apply it to us and then enable us to live by it. Father, we know that what we ask of you, you are able and willing to answer far beyond what we ask or even think. We ask that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. From the very first interaction of mankind with the devil, there have been lies in this world. A form of the great lie that we find in Genesis 3 is this. You don't need God. You can get on fine without him. That is a lie that is exceptionally prevalent in our day. Among us in this world are many who think they don't need God, they can get on just fine without Him. 
That is a lie, first and foremost, because it's not true. It's just simply not true. You do need God. You cannot get on fine without him. We need him. We need him every day. We need him every moment. We need him with us. That's such a core aspect of our lives, isn't it? We need him. We know that. And wherever we go, we know that he is there with us. I'm just about finished reading a set of fictional books that I, I started reading because my kids were reading them. And uh, that's about the level that I like to read at. <laughs> so I'm just about done with them, and it's, it doesn't really matter what they are. They're uh, for kids, for boys in particular, lots of battles, lots of fighting, good and evil, uh, good guys and bad guys, and uh, lots of victories, lots of losses. It's a, in many ways a compelling book, but like many fictional books, many these forms of media out there, there's something that's missing, something that's absent. We consume in our society a lot of media, a lot of stories, a lot of fiction, and I find encountering those, as great as the stories might be, as compelling as they may be, there's something that's missing. And it's more than something, it's a someone. And it's a someone very substantial. It's incredible that a whole story, a whole series of stories can go by without a single mention of God. And I understand that sometimes fiction makes you think about God without mentioning him, and the books I think my kids are reading do that. By and large, the stories that we consume in our society, as engaging as they are, miss the fundamental character of the whole universe. Oh, maybe they mention him in a blasphemous way, but they by and large leave him out. And so we have these portrayals of great lives, of great accomplishments, of great battles and losses, of joys and sorrows, and through them all it portrays this humanistic uh, picture of the world where we are the ones who accomplish that. We are the ones, only ones who experience those things. We achieve the great heights. We go to the great depths. And God is nowhere to be found. The life of a believer is so far from that. I'm sure that you feel, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you can't go a single day without thinking of him, calling on him, needing him, desperately wanting him to help you in your life. You know you need God. You know you can't get on fine without him. And you find that some of the most precious promises in the Bible are ones like these. When Jesus says at the end of Matthew, the last thing he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And you cling to that. Or you love the promise or the description of King David in Psalm 23 where he clings to the notion that God is with him. Or you love that verse that says the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. That's your life. You can't imagine life without the Lord. If he were not with us, all would be lost. You know that when you were saved, God gave you his very self in the spirit to indwell you. 
There's a story of a preacher who was known to go into a kind of a secluded place before he was called to preach and people would overhear him. While he was in that room and it sounded like he was having a conversation, he would say, I'm not going out there without you. I'm not going out there without you. And he would say it again and again. And somebody asked him one day, who are you talking to? God. That's the way we feel, isn't it? Or the way we should feel. I am not going out into this world without you. We need him wherever we go. This personal presence of God in the lives of his people is not something to be taken for granted, and nor is it something that the scripture takes for granted. Really, it is a theme that is there from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, God's presence with his people. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve created and placed in the Garden of Eden, and you get the sense from reading those opening chapters that they were there with God. In fact, after they sinned, we hear that God walked through the garden looking for them. And you get the sense from that that his presence among them was not uncommon. And when they were exiled then from the Garden of Eden and the cherubim were set up with flaming swords so they cannot enter again, you get the sense that the great loss that they have is being exiled from the presence of God in a special way. Following that, we realize that God is not going to be removed from his presence in this world forever. In fact, you see that there's a great project that he has going on in which he is going to be returning to dwell with his people. And that's really where the book of Exodus is heading. The very end of the book, you find God dwelling in a personal way among his people. And Israel, as we will see, We'll have God dwelling among them by the end of the book of Exodus, but in the meantime, we're going to find that it is a rather large undertaking to have God dwell in your midst. God is going to put himself into the center of the life of Israel. And that's what this section of scripture is about. It is about the beginning of the instructions for the tabernacle the house of God, the dwelling place of God among his people. And we're going to see in the coming weeks as we study these chapters that God is about putting himself in the center of the lives of Israel, quite physically in a sense, with a house that God is going to give instructions for how it is to be built, going to be right in the middle of the congregation of Israel. So physically located that all the tribes surround the tabernacle, the very tent of God, so physically and centrally located that when they get up to march, tribes will go before the tabernacle, tribes will go after the tabernacle, and in the middle will be the priests or the Levites carrying the tabernacle. There to be a holy nation whose God manifestly dwelt among them. Chapter 25, verse 8, is the key verse that holds out for us what this tabernacle is about says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That is God's goal. His goal is to prepare his people to have them in his midst. 
And that's, in a sense, the way that we should all feel very much about our lives. Individually and corporately. Individually, God is central. His whole presence is central to everything in our lives. As a church, God is central. Everything that we do is founded on the fact that he is among us. And so as we study this idea of the tabernacle, of God dwelling among his people, we'll see in these opening sections about how God is preparing his people for that reality of him dwelling among them. This, of course, is, is happening here in the, the last and final section of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is really a fascinating book because it captures so many different components of literature. It has exciting narrative, it has law, and it has now instructions for the tabernacle. Prior to the book of Exodus, we remember that God had made a promise to Abraham that he would bless Abraham's descendants, and he even told them that they were going to be enslaved in the land of Egypt for 400 years, and after that, God would come and deliver them. So by the beginning of Exodus, we have a huge promise hanging over the head of the Israelites, wherein God had declared he would rescue them and he'd bring them into a promised land in fulfillment of his promise. But for, is for Israel at that beginning of Exodus, seems like it may be an empty promise. But we know that God in his compassion and through his power does what he said he would do. He delivers them with great feats of power and victory over the nation of Egypt and particularly Pharaoh. And brings them through the Red Sea, delivers them into the wilderness, they are safe, they are free, and then he brings them to the bottom of Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. And in chapter 24, we have the sealing of the covenant between God and Israel, where their relationship with God is ratified by blood, and they are now bound in the covenant to God, obliged by their own words, and sealed in the covenant to obey him. Now, if Exodus were a movie, and it's been turned into a film several times, it kind of ends there, because that's all the exciting part. And it's almost as if Hollywood doesn't need the rest of Exodus, because that's really boring. And in some of our own mentalities, we come to this portion of Exodus, and we think, well, I can catch up in my Bible reading now, because this is just the time where you just have to read the headings of the chapters and you move on to the next section. Because it's going to be full of these instructions about the tabernacle that include all these details that are almost foreign to us that have pegs and fillets and framing and bases. You think, well, what's the significance here? But if you measure the significance of something in the Bible by the amount of chapters that it takes up, then we would find that these 16 chapters of Exodus are critically important to God's plan. And we know that God does not spend a single word on frivolity. Everything that he says is meaningful and purposeful. And so if we have that kind of mentality, we realize that by the amount of pages devoted to this of the tabernacle, we've come across something rather important in the mind of God. And so, from that very fact, we should devote our attention to this. And even if we consider the framework of the rest of Exodus, and understanding these last chapters of the book, 
We know that the framing of it tells us how important it is here. From chapter 25 to about chapter 31, God gives instructions for how the tabernacle is to be built in great, and some would say excruciating detail. And then from chapter 32 to about 34, something else happens. And then from 36 to the end of the book, you have this uh, almost repetition of what happened in the giving of the instruction of the tabernacle, but now it's being built almost verbatim from what was said in the instructions. And sandwiched in between the instruction and the building are those crucial chapters relating to Israel's idolatry in the golden calf incident. There's something important here for us. There's the importance of just the, the quantity of scripture that's devoted to this, and so we have to understand the tabernacle is an important feature in the plan of God in this world. We also understand that because the tabernacle is the way that God was going to dwell among the Israelites, that this is critically important as well because it shows that God's design has been to actually come and dwell among us. And we also realize that this plan for the tabernacle is not man's plan, it is God's plan. And so this getting God to dwell among us cannot happen by man's manipulation. It comes from the mind of God and from his plan. But then we also learn In the framing of these chapters, as the instructions are given to great detail, and then the tabernacle is built to that exact detail, and in the middle is that great sin of the golden calf, we learn a great principle. That it can be rather easy, in a sense, to obey God in the building of a building, and it is rather difficult to obey God from the heart in the first commandment. Because Israel does exactly what they're told to do in the building of the tabernacle. But then they break the very first commandment in Exodus 32. This passage introduces us to this whole idea of the tabernacle. It's an introductory passage because it has Moses being brought up to the Mount Sinai, receiving from the Lord instructions on the tabernacle. It shows us several lessons that I want to unpack together about what we can learn here as the tabernacle is introduced, an understanding of what God's plans are and have been. I think the first lesson that we really draw from this section is that the, the tabernacle begins at the initiative of the Lord. The tabernacle begins at the initiative of the Lord. As we have to notice very often in Scripture, if the Lord does not move first, then there is no movement at all. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. The tabernacle exists. Why? because God gave the instructions for it. He's the one who moved first. And in this case, in verse 12, we see it's the Lord who speaks and gives the command to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. He summons Moses up the mountain. He's the one who issues the command. This is coming from the very mind of God. 
And it tells us why he does that. It says that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. Those tablets would be these stone tablets written on them and printed with the very word of God detailing the law of God really consolidated in the Ten Commandments. This is what God is bringing Moses up to give to him. And we'll look at this more later as we study the tabernacle more in depth. But for now, notice that this is the introduction to the tabernacle. And the first thing that Moses is told by God is that God is going to give him these tablets of stone with the law. You think, well, what does that have to do with the tabernacle? Well, it has this to do with the tabernacle. The very center of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where the law, these tablets are going to be placed. And that Ark of the Covenant exists in the Holy of Holies, the most centrally located place in the tabernacle where God's holiness is on most preeminent display and yet is veiled with a veil that no one can access except for the high priest once a year. Outside of that room is the holy place where the priest would go in to maintain the altar of incense and the bread of the presence. And surrounding that whole structure is a veil that no one can really go into except for the priests. And surrounding that is the courtyard where there is a laver for the priests to wash themselves and to be clean, a bronze altar where sacrifice is laid and consumed and offering to the Lord. And surrounding that whole structure is yet another curtain to keep the common people out with access only through one gate and that with a sacrifice. And this structure is the tabernacle and will be central to Israel's life and worship. And at the very center of that, at the very holy of holies is the ark, and in the very ark is the tablets of stone that God is going to give to Moses. And so in a sense, we see what the tabernacle is all about. The coming of God's revelation and his presence where he dwells above the law upon which Israel needs to obey. In 31, chapter 31, verse 18, at the conclusion of the instructions of the tabernacle, we're told that God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This tells me that the initiative event is really here, the giving of the tablets of stone, which is really the centerpiece of the tabernacle upon which God will dwell. And this, again, comes at the initiative of the Lord. This beginning of the giving of the tablets and then the instructions for the tabernacle all come from the Lord. There has been no one in Israel who has said, you know what would be a really good idea? Let's build this tent and put it in the middle of us and have God live right there. No one in Israel has said that. As a matter of fact, what Israel has said is quite the opposite. In chapter 20, verse 19, after God thundered from Mount Sinai, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. This idea of the tabernacle wasn't their idea. 
If they heard what God was saying to Moses, they'd probably say, Moses, come back down from the mountain. Stop. Don't do that. But this was God's plan to dwell among his people. If Israel had any say in it, they'd probably say, stop. And that whole concept really directly attach, attacks our penchant to want the blessings of God without God himself. But what I mean by that is this. When Israel was brought out of slavery, led through the Red Sea, they immediately began praising God. They sang the song in Exodus 15. They were happy. They were jubilant. They were so excited. Why? Well, who wouldn't be excited about being set free from that enslavement? It's a terrific situation they now have. What happens just a couple days later? They start, start complaining about the food service. They're not good enough. They want their bellies full and their mouths and thirst quenched. They want delivery from slavery, but do they want God? They want the food from heaven, but do they want the God of heaven? So quick to take God's blessings, and so quick to complain when they're not there. But who are we to talk? We're so quick to take God's blessings and complain when they don't come with the speed and rapidity and frequency that we want. And we're quick to complain about what we don't have and yet, we neglect the greatest gift that we do have, God himself. We complain about what he doesn't give us, and we forget what he has given us, himself. We eat his food, we drink his water, we breathe his air, but we neglect God himself. We complain about his food, his weather, his provision, and we forget the gift that he is with us. God is the one who had to take the initiative to actually dwell with us. Because if left to us, we would just take the money and run. And yet notice the graciousness of this invitation that God gives to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me. Come up to me. This is not a normal hike up a mountain. He's not going for a scenic panorama of all the people of Israel. He's going up to the Lord He's going up to the Lord, by the way, who had to condescend to come down on a mountain. We have to go up. God has to come down. God came from his lofty heights of heaven to manifest himself on the top of Mount Sinai. What is it like for Moses to be there with God in his presence? We're told in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, a bit of what it was like in a different context. We're told, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What was it like for Moses? There was such fellowship between Moses and God that its closeness was described as the closeness between friends. We can't take that too far. We don't buddy up to God and treat him triviality, but we do realize that by his grace, 
He welcomes us into his presence. What a gift. There's another setting in which Moses has an experience on a mountain where he is granted access to the Lord. It happens in the New Testament. It happens in the book of Matthew, chapter 17, where Jesus, after six days, took his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and led them up on a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. And it says that he, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And guess who else showed up? Moses and Elijah were there talking with him. I don't know how time and memory work in this scheme, but I wonder if for Moses, when he was back on that mountain, he could think, you know, 1,400 years ago, I had a very similar experience. Getting to be there amongst the glory of God and now seeing the Son of God in his radiant glory and he spoke with him, perhaps even as a friend speaks with a friend. That's the goodness of the presence of God. And Moses was invited up on the mount to be there with the Lord. As Moses went up, there was an interesting timing to this. And we understand now that the, the presence of God and its blessings come with the contingency of his timing. That's another lesson for us, that the tabernacle really have, happens under the timing of the Lord, or the presence of God really happens under his timing. Notice in verse 12, the Lord says to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, or remain there. And it says in verse 16, that the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And we think, well, God can do anything, and he can do anything instantaneously. And yet here he has Moses go up the mountain, kind of come with Joshua, his assistant, to the, the base of the cloud of God's glory. And he has to wait there for six days. Why wait? Isn't, isn't God right there? And not only that, but then it says that Moses went up on the mountain in verse 18, and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. What's with this... What's with this long, dry-out thing? Why can't it just happen like that? I mean, God can do it in an instant. Oh, yeah, he can. But have you ever noticed in your walk with the Lord that God is much more interested in doing things according to his timetable than yours? We pray to the Lord in the moment of need, we call on him, we cry out to him, and we know that in his power he can resolve whatever dilemma, whatever difficulty we have, and he can resolve it with but a word, and in a moment it can all just disappear, and he can make it right, and we believe that in our hearts that while we pray, God, you can fix this right now. But what does he end up doing in our lives? He has us wait. And in the waiting, it produces testing, and in the testing, it produces trust. Because we have to rely on him, and we have to rely on his timing. 
And as the cloud covers the mountain for those six days, the people of Israel should be able to see this and should be able to count one, two, three, four, five, six. And that could conjure in their minds something else that happened in six days. God creating the whole world. He made everything in six days. He is not limited. He is not unable. And then on the seventh, he calls Moses into the cloud and he leaves Joshua there and Moses gets to go up into the cloud. And there he is going to receive something, in a sense, totally new in the world. The dwelling place of God amidst man. Moses seemed to have a sense he was going to be gone for a while because before he left, he said in verse 14 to the elders, wait here, you've got Aaron and Hur with you. If any disputes happen, bring it to them. It's a little bit of a foreshadowing, by the way. Keep that one in mind for Exodus chapter 32. Moses had delegated and the delegation didn't do too well. Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He had that time with the Lord. What, what would be the effect on somebody to have that much time there with the glory of the Lord. Well, we know a couple of effects. In chapter 34, we're told what being in the presence of God was like in verse 29, excuse me, 28. It says, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Moses was there in the presence of the Almighty God, the one who has life in himself, so close to him that he didn't need food or drink. That's how good the presence of God was. And it goes on, what, what other effects happened in Moses' life? Well, it says in verse 29 of Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. How cool is that? In the presence of God there, talking as a friend talks to a friend, the glory of God was so transformative upon Moses that his skin actually shone when he came down. Time with the Lord issued a great change upon Moses. We don't yet have the privilege of visibly seeing the glory of God. But do you know where God dwells now? God dwells in his people, the church. And the dwelling is so intimate that it's spoken of in the New Testament as his very spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of holiness, indwells his people. Moses, there in a physical proximity to God, left the presence of God glowing. God, in his presence by his spirit, indwells his people. And you know what Paul says? That our outer man is wasting away. Our outer man isn't shining, nice and glorious, but what happens to our inner man? It's renewed day by day. This tabernacle that comes at the initiative of the Lord brings great transformation because of his presence. We have to keep in mind, however, that for Israel, this, this 
presence and access to it was still limited. Only Moses was invited up to the top of the mountain. And when the tabernacle was constructed, there were all these barriers to access to God. They would have to think very carefully about how they were to come into the presence of this holy, almighty God. And this would be very obvious to them because they're at the top of the mountain. The whole mountain now, Erparsha, part of it, the top of the mountain is covered with the cloud. And Moses is in there and Israel looks up and they get to see the glory of God, which is manifest in a devouring fire, it says in verse 17. The description of God's glory on the mountain is simply described as a devouring fire, reminiscent of that burning bush that burned and yet was not consumed. God revealing his glory in his fire, that purifying, dangerous, bright substance of fire. It's an intentional way that God chose to reveal his glory, a powerful, even an almost unwelcoming sight revelation of the fiery purity that he possesses in himself. When the Apostle John was on the Isle of Patmos and he had his vision, he saw the resurrected and glorified Christ. That description is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. And it describes Jesus as John saw him and says that the hair, hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. Then it says this about Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Such purity in our Lord. And John saw that, and it says that he fell down like a dead man. And yet Jesus welcomed John. And again, it's only by the welcoming grace of God that we could ever have access into the presence of one so holy, so pure, so consuming, without actually being consumed. The introduction to the tabernacle goes on as the Lord now speaks to Moses in chapter 25 and tells Moses what is to be done. And he says, speak to the people of Israel in verse 2, that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution for me. The Lord is now preparing for the tabernacle to be built, and the way he intends to have it constructed is from heart-level gifts of his people. When the people were to bring contributions of materials that would be used in the construction of the tabernacle. That's what the Lord wanted. He wanted his dwelling place to be constructed from the very materials that his people brought. He told them what to bring, but they were the ones who brought them, and he only wanted gifts brought from hearts prompted to bring it. And for Israel, if things went in plan, they would look at that structure of the tabernacle and they would know that the, the precious metals there, the fabrics there, the skins there, the gems there, the wood there, would be have, have been donated by them. The very place where God is going to dwell, this very house, is constructed out of materials that they had the privilege to give this could very easily turn into a message about kicking up a building fund. But we're not going there. Because the point was that the people, out of the generosity of their hearts, were going to give to God things that were common, precious but common, 
then really sanctified by the Lord to become holy so that he himself would inhabit those things. He would dwell there among those things. He takes that which was common, in a sense, everyday things, yes, precious, but used amongst the people, and they were going to become part and parcel of the holy dwelling of God. And God takes what is common and makes it holy. And that ought to be so incredibly encouraging to you. Not in the giving of financial gifts, because what is the Lord looking for? Certainly we give him our all, and that includes financial gifts. We marvel at what he does with it. But at the center, what God is asking of us is to give our very selves a living sacrifice. Just us. Just you. Just me. Just simple old people. Given to the Lord. And what does he do with that? He takes you, he sanctifies you, and he dwells in you. So the tabernacle to be constructed of materials that the people had, though they were to be costly materials, precious metals, gold, silver, bronze, dyed claws, animal skins, oil and spices, quality wood, gems. Dyed claws themselves were to be exceptionally precious in a sense. To have that fabric given to the Lord and then dyed a certain color would be commodities that were extremely valuable. There's uh, an archaeological discovery that was made just a couple of years ago in the south of Israel where the archaeologists discovered fabric from about 1000 BC. It's about 3000 years old. It's from the time of David and Solomon and they found this fabric and what was interesting about it was that it was dyed. It was dyed royal purple. That dye was generated from certain kind of sea creatures, sea snails that were common in the Mediterranean. And um, those would have to be acquired, great quantities of them, because in that sea creature was just this little gland that would secrete um, uh, almost an ink or a pigment that they would isolate and they'd grind together and it would create, generate this pigment. And one of these little sea snails would create about one gram of dye. And God is going to require huge quantities of fabric dyed blue and purple and scarlet, each coming from a different creature. One of those archaeologists conducted a, an experiment to kind of cre recreate that dye, and he went to Italy and bought a bunch of these snails, and they wondered what he was going to do with them, because it was actually in the food market, but he didn't want to eat them. He just wanted to create the dye, and he described it as hard, smelly work. And after he worked on this for two weeks, or after a week or so, his hands were dyed purple, just to get a little bit of dye. And the people would not just give those precious materials, but also the animal skins, the goat's hair, like felt, kind of woven together, tanned ram skins could be dyed red, it could just be some sort of tanned leather, or, and then goat skins, or some translations, dolphin skins, or sea cow hides. Dolphins were prevalent in the Red Sea, they could have had access to those skins, creating a watertight covering, could be fine leather, oil and spices, including myrrh and cinnamon, cane and cassia, quality wood, acacia, which would be darker than oak and would be insect repellent, and then those gems. 
common in a sense, and yet precious. All to be contributed from the heart for the building of God's house. And I find it fascinating that God is not asking the people to use some futuristic technology. He's just asking them to use what they have on hand. God knew who he was going to dwell amongst, and he does not seem to begrudge what they don't have to honor him, but rather he helps them honor him with what they do have. At the end of the day, that tabernacle would look like a 15th century B.C. construction. It would not look like a 21st century building. I find that also encouraging. And we could put it this way. God is not asking them to give what they don't have. Will it be costly? Yes. Will it require hard work? Yes. But they're simply bringing him their gifts from their hearts and desiring to do so. And by his will and by his plan, he will turn it into his very own dwelling place. By his means, the common will become holy. We offer ourselves. Will it be costly? Yes. Will it require denying ourselves? Yes. But who is the one who transforms it from common to holy? It is our great God. And what he is going to do with that tabernacle is so plain. He says again in verse 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Sanctuary is a, a holy place. One that is set apart. It is a place where holiness is. It is where God himself in a personal way will dwell in his purity, his otherness, his uniqueness. And he says he's going to dwell there, that I may dwell in their midst. And the word tabernacle is derived from that same word. And another synonym for, synonym, synonym for that, not synonym, 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 is a tent. Used elsewhere to describe the tabernacle. It's just a, it's what everybody in Israel lived in. A tent. That was it. It was a dwelling place. A place that they called home, at least while they were mobile. It was a mobile home. And that's what God is having made. Basically a mobile home. One author puts it this way. It would be the tent God used when God went camping. And in pitching his tent, he goes on to say that it symbolized his coming alongside, his identification with them, with their circumstances. It indicates his permanency as though it were his address, the place where he was to be found living. And the point is that here God's holiness comes and he dwells in an ordinary tent made extraordinary by his presence and his plan. He makes his home among his people. So close that he could be seen. This plan was to be done according to the exact instructions of the Lord. We'll draw that out a bit more in the weeks to come. Just one last, very brief point. If you look at the book of Revelation, chapter 21, we understand again that God's intent 
on dwelling amidst his people. There's a plan there in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. There's a plan there in Israel. There's a plan when Jesus Christ himself came to tabernacle among us, meaning that he is Emmanuel, God with us. It was his plan when he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in his people. And it is a plan consummated in the second to last chapter of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God. Or as some translations, the King James says, the tabernacle. Or as the Greek puts it, the skene, the tent. Behold, the tent, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's the end of the story that really enters into all eternity. God with man, dwelling with them. What story is complete without the presence of God amongst his people? That's the whole story. And brothers and sisters, for those who are in Christ, we are his people. We are his church, and he dwells among us. One day we will see it face to face. One day we will be there with him in glory. And until that day, he has not forsaken us. He has not left us. He is with us. Let's pray. Father, that you would be with us, a people who were known to be sinners, vile in our rebellion against you. And yet, Lord, now you call us saints, a holy people, fit now by your grace completely to have you dwell in us and among us. Lord, this is a, a truth that I think is so profound and so precious that we have barely begun to understand its significance. And so, Lord, we would ask you that even this week, you would impress upon us the grandness of your plan to dwell among your people. And Lord, we would be in awe of what you have done for us. To take the common, to take the unclean, and to clean us, and to make us holy, to even be the place where you dwell. We thank you, Father. We bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.